Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the honor and pleasure of welcoming Marshall Goldsmith. He is a member of the Thinker 50 Hall of Fame. He is the only two-time Thinker 50 number one leading thinker in the world. He's been ranked as the world's number one executive coach and top 10 business thinker for eight years. He was chosen as the inaugural winner of the Lifetime Award for Leadership at the Harvard Institute of Coaching. But he's also been a New York Times number one best-selling author, not once, not twice, I don't know. He's written 43 books, which have sold over two and a half million copies. I feel like if one of my books does as good as one of his worst books, it would be a good day. But it's been translated into 32 languages, become listed as a bestseller in 12 countries. And Amazon recently recognized the 100 best leadership and success books ever written. So I have to say, it's an honor to have you, Marshall. Welcome to What's Next. Oh, thank you so much for, for inviting me. I'm honored to be working with you. Well, listen, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I want to say it might be uh, North Carolina. I'm going to try to do this from memory. I think it was, I think it was North Carolina. And I was in the Admiral's Club Lounge, which is the American Airlines um, frequent flyer lounge. And I was walking out and there was this plaque by the little, you know, glass door that opens up. And it looked up and it was like, you know, our most frequent flyers. So I look up on the wall and lo and behold, there's this gentleman, Marshall Goldsmith, whom I know. And I'm like, oh my God, he's on the wall. And this had to be, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And I think it was like seven or 8 million miles. Yep. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, you know, I have 11 million now. Oh my God. And I'm at three, three and a half. I'm a little north of three. And I feel like, good God, all I do is spend time in a plane. But now you're at 11. Like, I don't know if I aspire to be you, but you know, I just thought what a small world, right? Very small world. <laughs> well, we are going to start this off with something I call bullish and bearish. Uh, nothing too painful. Bullish, you are for it. Bearish, you are against it. Three quick questions. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. AI coaching. Bullish. Oh, not what I expected. I love when somebody gives me an answer I didn't expect. Okay. A hotel underwater. Bullish. Oh, all right. The third, living in the tallest building in the world. Bullish or bearish? Totally bullish because I live in the tallest building in the world. <laughs> There you go. Well, thank you, Marshall. Thanks for playing along. Um, well, we, you have a new book out called The Earned Life that has just taken kind of the world by storm. Everybody I talk to says, have you read it? Have you talked to Marshall? I'm like, I'm trying to get him on the show. He's been super busy. And so I, I would love to, you know, after 43 books, if if that number is still correct, might be more since since I knew that number. What made you decide to write The Earned Life? Well, what happened is um, I was, I've lived in Rancho Santa Fe, California for 35 years, and then we were going to move to Nashville, but I figured it'd take a while to sell the house. And so we got a place on the beach in La Jolla, and, and we were going to live there for a little bit, but it turned out they had COVID came up. We ended up living there almost two years. And over the COVID period, I had these sessions called LPR, Life Plan Review, with 60 amazing people. And every weekend, we had six hours. And they would break up into groups of oh maybe eight or 10 per group. And every weekend for two years almost, I had listened to 60 amazing people talk all about their lives. And the material from those conversations kind of inspired me to write the book, The Earned Life. Well, I can't imagine. I think 
during COVID, uh, everyone was trying to figure out how do I stay connected and engaged and healthy and safe and yeah. all of those things. But I, I find it fascinating that 60 people would be that committed during a time of such uncertainty to spend with each other on really just trying to be better humans. Well, you know, it was great. And I can mention the names of the people. We had Pal Gasol, who's a famous basketball guy, Curtis Martin, National Football League Hall of Fame, Telly Leung, who played uh, Aladdin on Aladdin. We had Ross Shaw, who's head of the Rockefeller Foundation, and Jim Kim, president of World Bank. And uh, these are amazing, amazing people. And, you know, every weekend we would talk about life and we had, you know, Michelle Seitz from Russell Investments and Margot from Ancestry and it's just a wonderful group and they would talk about life. And, you know, for a couple of things that really hit me, I had no idea how popular this would be. And we did it for about six months and Mark, Mark Thompson did it with me every week. And Mark and I thought, well, we'll do it six months and then, you know, maybe people don't want to do it anymore if they don't feel obligated. 100% of the people said they want to keep doing it. And what I learned is basically people are lonely today. And there's an old saying, it's lonely at the top. Well, it used to be lonely at the top. It is lonelier at the top today. And today with social media, the cancel culture or whatever, people are afraid to say much of anything to anybody. And just to be in a group where they can openly discuss their lives and they talk about their problems and they ask for help. And it's just, it was a wonderful experience. Very, very unique. Did any of them know each other before the group got together? A few, but not too many. Yeah. And so do you think that had some bearing on their willingness to be as vulnerable and transparent? I, they all they all pretty much knew either me or Mark Thompson. So I think they, they trusted us. So they're kind of used to it. And, and you know, there are a lot of them are members of the 100 coach group. So in that sense, they, they were at least somehow connected with each other. So it's wonderful. Well, so now let's step through some of uh, what you found. And, and I wonder, uh, you know, if there's people listening that said, wow, I would love a group like that. Do, do you think they could just start one, grab a couple of colleagues and sort of get together? Or do you think it needs to be more formalized and structured? Well, let me just tell you what we did first. A lot of the group, we, we had people ask, ask six questions every day about themselves. And they all began with, did I do my best to? Now, my daughter, Kelly's a professor at Vanderbilt. She's chairman of the marketing department now. She taught me this. If people ask a question that begins with, do I do my best to, they personalize it. If I say, are you happy? And you say, no, you blame the environment. If I say, did you do your best to be happy? Then you have to look in the mirror and say, wait a minute, how about me? Well, every weekend, every day, these people answer these questions. Number one, did I do my best to set clear goals? Did I do my best to make progress? Did I do my best to be happy? Did I do my best to find meaning? Did I do my best to build positive relationships? And did I do my best to be fully engaged? So they would deal with these six questions and then any other questions they wanted to put in to test themselves every day. And at the end of the week, they would sort of share the report card about here's how my week went. And then, then we practice something called feed forward. And the rules of feed forward are that people give you ideas and you just say thank you. You don't judge, you don't critique, you don't put anyone down. You don't say, I already knew that. No matter what they say, you just say, thank you. And then people would get ideas and then go on to the next person. And it's kind of like, it was kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous for extremely successful people. <laughs> you know, 
my name is, my problem is, <laughs> help me. And yeah, everybody just tries to help each other. It's really, really very nice. And one person said, it was nice that one hour a week, I got to act like a human being. Yeah. And I would guess that would be true, right? Because in lots of those situations, they're surrounded by people, they're handled, they're not, you know, people don't approach, approach them maybe and have conversations with them. And they're not able to say certain things to your point that they might say in a more trusted setting. And so I, I'm sure it was relieving, freeing, um, uh, motivating, inspiring, all of those things simultaneously. Well, you know, what's great about it, more than half the dialogue had nothing to do with work. I would think not. Yeah, more than half the dialogue was about home. Because, you know, I mean, what happens is you read these people's bios, you think they're all the second coming of God or something, right? But the reality is they got kids with drug problems, parents with Alzheimer's, they got the same crap everybody else does. And they just don't have anybody to talk to about it. Yeah, and I think that goes back to, uh, you know, showing up for each other. You know, you never know what someone has going on, no matter what it says on their resume or what it might say on their title or what it may, you may think their card, you know, brings and bears. Uh, but, you know, paying attention to those around you uh, and being willing to, you know, ask caring and careful questions, but then yeah. being willing to listen. I mean, you can't go into those conversations and just want to talk. Well, and the other nice thing about it is when one person is getting helped, half the time the other people have their same problems anyway. I think it's universal. I think people have, you know, universal, it's maybe different degrees Financial yeah. and work status may change things. Where you live may change, you know, things, some of the environmental things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, we're all humans just trying to be humans. That's it. That's it. And, you know, everybody's just trying to make it through the day. And and some of these classic problems that people have. And, and also, I mean, you know, it's it's you just have different problems when you're successful. There's not much correlation between, for example, wealth and happiness. And um, one reason you realize that, a lot of these people are pretty wealthy. They just have different problems. Yeah. And, and sometimes at a grander scale <laughs> because yeah, exactly. they're CEOs that are responsible for tens of thousands of people's jobs. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's go to the earned life. So I know that there is uh, a few concepts in there I want to make sure that we share with the listeners today, Marshall. So one of them is every breath. I'd, I'd love for you to, to share that. Well, this book is basically a Buddhist philosophy book. So I'm a Buddhist. I'm not a religious Buddhist. I'm a philosophical Buddhist. And so the every breath paradigm is a big part of the book, and that's a key component of Buddhism. The key part of Buddhism is impermanence. And by the way, impermanence is very not a Western concept. The book is very non-Western. If you read the book, the book is mostly Buddhist philosophy, you know, Hindu philosophy. It's, it's not much of a Western book at all. The idea of the every breath paradigm is every time I take a breath, it's a new me. Every time I take a breath, it's a new me. There is no consistent you that travels throughout time. That you that's here today is different than the you that's here yesterday. The you at the end of this call is different than the you at the beginning of this call. So as we go through life, we're constantly reinventing our lives, which is very different than the Western paradigm, which is I'll be happy when when I get the money status, BMW, condominium, when I achieve some crap, everything's going to be a great win. Well, to me, there is no win. Life is a constant series of restarts. There's one book that always ends with the same ending, and they lived happily ever after. That book is called A Fairy Tale. <laughs> it's not the real world. In the real world, there's no place you get to. And the Western paradigm 
I'm sure you may have seen the great Western art form a few thousand times. It sounds like this. There's a person. They're sad. Oh, sad. They spend money. They buy a product and they become happy. This is called a commercial. How many of those have you seen in your life? How many thousands, hundreds of thousands? Same message over and over. It's out there. Well, the essence of the book says it's not out there. It's in here. Yeah, and when you said, sir, when something, like, well, when might be right now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the in one of the guys um, in the book is Safi Bacall. I don't know if you ever met Safi before, but he's a brilliant guy. He wrote a book called Loon Shots, and he started four companies worth tens of millions of dollars. He's a consultant to the presidents and, you know, blah, 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 on and on. And got a PhD in physics from Stanford. So his IQ is probably equal to mine and yours combined. So anyway, Safi um, is in our group, and he said, I finally realized something. He said he used to think that happiness was a dependent variable based on achievement. And he finally realized that happiness and achievement are independent variables. You can achieve nothing and be happy. You can achieve a lot and be happy. You can achieve nothing and be miserable. You can achieve a lot and be miserable. And he said that was such a breakthrough for him. Well, for him, you know, he didn't get very high scores on happiness every week. And he, he, he used to think, once I achieve this, I'm going to be happy. And I said, exactly how much do you have to achieve here? You already have a PhD in physics from Stanford. You've written a New York Times bestseller. You're worth tens of millions of dollars. You started four successful companies, you know, consulting to presidents, blah, blah, blah. Now, exactly when did you cross that line? Because you're already a 99.999 on achievement now. You really think getting up to a 99.9999 is going to make any difference? You really? All of a sudden, whoa, this is it. Now I crossed the barrier. You know, what do you got to get? Two PhDs from Stanford? You know, at a certain point, at a certain point, it becomes insane. And the people on the call are all just ridiculous achievers. Well, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I think they cross that line when they realize it's almost over. If something happens and they realize it's almost over, then they go, wow, I guess I did achieve everything. I did have what I needed all along, right? And then and then, what is the tombstone going to say everything you just said, Marshall? You know, a PhD from Stanford, this much money, four accounts. I mean, is that what it's all about? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> exactly. All right. So that's every breath. And then you have the, uh, um, the second one. What's the second one is? Is the balancing of the aspirations, our ambitions, and our actions. And I'll just talk about a little bit about that. But our aspirations are the big picture. Why am I here? What's my purpose of life and all that? And the aspirations don't have a timeline. Our ambitions relate to what we're achieving. And that does have a clear and specific timeline. And our actions are what we're doing now. And really, a key to having a great life is you need to align these three things. What matters in life? Well, there's not that much that matters anyway. If you're assuming that you're healthy, you got some people you love, and that you have a lower middle class income or above, what matters is, well, you've got some sense of purpose. Why am I here? Some sense of meaning that you're achieving something that seems important to you and that you're enjoying the process. Basically, if you do that, that's about, <laughs> as far as I can tell, that's about all there is. You, you just won the game of life. And historically, our ancestors were focused on the action phase. They were very poor people. They live day to day in the cave. They didn't do a lot of long-term planning there. You know, they're just kind of making it through the day, not the bad or good. That just is what it was. And 
sometimes today you see a lot of people and many people today are still focused on that phase. They might be video game addicts or they're just living day to day. Some people are focused on the aspiration phase. They're just kind of lost in their heads. They have lots of lofty ideas. They don't really do anything, but they're very good at dreaming and thinking. The people I work with and people listening to this, this call are basically, their problem is over-focused on achievement. They're typically achievaholics and that they just get lost in achievement. And if we're not careful, we can get lost in achievement at the expense of why am I doing this? Or we can lose the day-to-day -day value of joy of life. We're too busy achieving things. So three of the people that I talk about in my, in my group, and they've all been members of these groups, are Dr. Jim Kim, who is a simultaneous MD and PhD from Harvard in anthropology, Dr. John Noseworthy, who's head of the Mayo Clinic, and Raj Shaw, who's head of USAID at age 37. So I ask all of them, how would you score on a typical day? And the answer to this question, did I do my best to be happy? All three had the same answer. Never dawned on me to be happy. Never wow. thought about it. Now, wow. they're, all they're all medical doctors. So I said, now, did it dawn on you you're going to die? Did they cover that one in medical school? Death. Did they cover that? I said, yeah, they brought that death thing up. I said, do you think this is a silly question or a trivial question? I said, no, no. It's a very important question. I just never thought about it. And it's interesting for doctors considering that they, you know, on a good day, they have the ability to create happiness for those that they help. And so wouldn't that kind of, you know, rub off on them that some of that happiness makes them feel happy, but it, based on what you just said, it was much more about the achievement of I saved them, not the happiness of I saved them. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, the marshmallow research, they did at Stanford. Well, you take this kid, you give him a marshmallow, and he said, well, if they eat one, they get one. But if they wait, oh, you get two. So allegedly, they did his longitudinal studies, and the kids that eat one all become drug addicts and useless, and the kids that eat two all get PhDs from Stanford. But as it turned out, they didn't do something else in the research. They didn't take the kid that had two marshmallows and say, kid, wait a bit. Wait some more. Three. Oh, wait a little bit more, four, five, 10, 100, 1,000. And where does the story end? An old man sitting in a room waiting to die, surrounded by thousands of uneaten marshmallows. Sometimes you need to eat the marshmallow. Well, I, I think that needs to be a bumper sticker. Whoever's listening and is an entrepreneur, like it needs to be sometimes you just need to eat the marshmallow. Eat the marshmallow. And then I have a story in the book about Jack Welch. Jack Welch almost died. He has a triple bypass surgery. And my friend is a good friend of his. So I said, Jack, what'd you learn about life when you almost died? You know what Jack Welch said? Why am I drinking the damn cheap wine every night? <laughs> Jack Welch. Jack Welch has an incredible wine collection, right? All this fancy wine. But he, every night he's drinking cheap wine. You know what he was doing? He was waiting for the nice wine to appreciate in value. I mean, how insane is that? This is Jack Welch waiting for his wine to appreciate in value. The guy's worth hundreds of millions of bucks, right? What does it matter if his wine appreciates in value, right? And all of a sudden, he just said, this is insane. What am I doing? Yeah, what am I doing? You know what he said? One commitment. No more cheap wine for me. Well, I, that almost is a is a great metaphor for his leadership style. <laughs> but that's a, that's a whole other conversation, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. All right. So, and then the next one is uh, um, building credibility. Now, building credibility is an interesting thing. Peter Drucker, I was I was very fortunate. He was my 
Yeah, I was on his advisory board for 10 years. The idea of me advising him was a little silly. But anyway, in theory, I was on the advisory board of the Peter Drucker Foundation for 10 years, and he taught me many wonderful things in life. He said, our mission in life is to make a positive difference, not to prove how smart we are and right we are. And then as we journey through life, if I need to influence you to make a positive difference, there's one word to describe you. That's called customer. There's one word to describe me. It's called salesperson. And customers don't have to buy. Salespeople have to sell. Sell what you can sell, change what you can change. If you can sell it, sell it. You can change it, change it. If you can't, take a deep breath and let it go. Just great advice. And if you look at credibility, the book title is, is Credibility Must Be Earned Twice. One, you need to be good at what you're doing so you're competent. Yet two, you need to be recognized for your competence. Now, we were talking about books. You know, you're making jokes about books. Amazon has, I'm going to tell you, statistics going to make you feel better about your book sales. Are you ready? Amazon has 32.8 million titles. How many books do you have to sell in a year to be in the top half of all books sold that year on Amazon? And the answer is two. Oh, I was going to say five. Two. That's it. Two books. You're in the top half. Mommy and daddy bought the book. You're in the top half. Well, you know, I, I've sold a bunch of books. This book is a New York Times bestseller. I'm not arrogant enough to believe that this book is better than 16 million other books. I'm sure many of those books are better than anything I ever dreamed of. Nobody's going to buy them. Nobody knows who they are. Nobody's going to buy the book. It might be the best book in the world. Nobody's going to buy it. That's reality. So the idea of credibility is when should you promote yourself and when should you not promote yourself? And one, one thing I talk about is building credibility is when you are promoting yourself in a way that makes the world better. That's a good thing. That's called building credibility. There's another box that's called letting go, which is also good. I'm not trying to prove myself and it wouldn't be good if I did. But then we have two other boxes. One is called overselling. Overselling is when you're trying to promote yourself and you shouldn't be doing it at all. And I wrote a whole book about that called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Most of that book is about overselling. Why? Most of the people I coach are men. They're CEOs and they're very assertive. And their problem is not underselling. Their problem is they're trying to win all the time, prove they're right, whatever. Overselling. That's what the whole book is about. I did a book with Sally Huggison called How Women Rise. That book is largely about underselling. A lot of women don't promote themselves enough. Underselling. they holding back too much. And and it's interesting, when I do my podcast, I ask people, how many of you oversell and how many of you undersell? And although my coaching clients are largely people that will be in the overselling, many of the people, especially coaches, are underselling. And then I have three questions I ask people, which are just killer questions on underselling. Are you ready for the three? I am ready. Question number one, I ask people who are underselling, would the world be worse off or better off if you became more powerful and influential? Well, they invariably say, better off. Then, by the way, reluctantly to say better off. It takes them a little while of mumbling around, but they finally get the better off. Then I say question two, does trying to promote yourself make you uncomfortable? Uh, typically, yes. Then question three, what's more important, making the world better or being comfortable? Because if you want to be comfortable, then don't promote yourself. Yeah, because if you promote yourself and you get rejected, that's <laughs> you know, it's not very comfortable. But I was trying to think of the answers. 
I uh, was in an interview many years ago and I was having this very conversation about pr- promoting yourself in different words. We were using different words. Yes, yes. The net net of it was promoting yourself. And and my answer was, you know, do not misinterpret confidence for ego. Right. When I'm like, I'm sharing this, I'm not doing it from a place of ego. I, it's actually what happened. <laughs> it's actually what I did, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to feel embarrassed for saying that this is what happened and this is what I did, you know, or right. I don't want to feel that I'm boasting or I don't want to, fe- you know, I, you, you asked me, I answered and, and I definitely find the push and pull of what is the balance between building credibility. Like I'll just share when we first met, you and I first met first to first face to face. We knew who each other was, but we had never met face to face. We met at a Thinkers 50 event in London in 2019. And you were standing with Dory Clark and Tasha and and we they were you were talking. I walked up, they introduced us. I said, Oh, you know, we've never met. I told you the story about the, you know, nine million miles of the American Lounge, right? We had that, oh. had that quick conversation. And you asked me, what do you do? So I said, you know, okay, well, here's my opportunity, right? We've never met in person. How do I answer this? I was not yet a thinker 50. It was the first year I made the list. And so I'm like, okay, how do I answer this? So I started to answer. You asked me a couple of questions and then you looked at me and said, I think you should be part of the MG 100. Like it was, you know, that fast. So you also can establish credibility quickly. And if someone really recognizes that you um, are right, aligned to whatever the goal is, right? In your case, it was the MG100. Um, right. In putting like-minded people together, then the you know telling the credibility story. If I was uncomfortable about it, wasn't sure about it, or I didn't think I could stand up to it, I, I would have just said, "Oh, I you know I would have brushed it under the rug." All right, it's a great example, and I mean to me, that's a very positive thing. I mean, I love the the hundred coaches thing. I mean, it's just such a nice idea. People in a group are so nice. And the idea is the group is everybody just has to help each other. And there's no money. There's no money. There's no expectation. There's no guilt. And if people can help you, that's great. And if they can't, that's okay. But there's no expectation to give them money or pay anything back. You just help other people. It's been, it's been a lovely group. You know, I, I I'm a little different because I'm not a coach in that way. I'm not, and I'm not a full-time coach. I, I have a full-time job, but, but it's also great to be able to offer help and then, yeah. you know, and, and ask a question. And I've met really fantastic people, many of whom have, you know, made it on the show, uh, onto what's next. So it's been, uh, it's been a great experience, but as we get ready to kind of wrap this up, uh, I know the book now has been out a couple of months and, and what have you been most surprised at and then what have you maybe been surprised that people weren't more excited about maybe? Well, the book itself has, I, it's really hard to say about books when you write them because you write them. And I will say this book, number one, I think it's phenomenally well-written. Now I can say that without bragging. I didn't write it. My friend Mark Ryder actually writes the books and I have ideas and then he puts it together and writes it and sends it to me and we edit it and puts around. And then we've done four books together and they're all New York Times bestsellers. So it's just been hugely successful. He really put his heart into this book. Uh, he was part of our LPR groups. He really believed in this concepts and 
you know, I, I think you can tell the difference in the way it reads. I mean, he's worked hard on every book. He's done a great job. But this book, I thought he just did a spectacular job. I guess on a positive sense, I've been surprised the book has gotten almost no negative feedback. I mean, you know, books are, I mean, usually there's some idiot out there who critique anything. I mean, you know, Gettysburg Address, well, what does he know? You know, it's a, and, and this book has gotten almost no negative feedback. And so that's been a really, I guess, a positive surprise for me. And I think, I think the timing was good because of COVID. People started thinking a lot about life and who am, I, who am I and what does it all mean and why am I here and all that. So I think the timing on the book was very, very positive. So I guess the, you know, the book has kind of exceeded my expectations. And also, I wasn't sure anybody was going to buy it too much because, I mean, the title is not a good title for selling books. The Earned Life is not a good title for selling books. A much better title is The Unearned Life or uh, The One Minute Life or The Four Hour Work Week or, you know. Just, yeah, you should have just called it Eat the Marshmallow. Yeah, right. Or The Secret, even better. Why, why bother with four hours? Just wish it and it's going to happen, right? Well, Marshall, this has just been fantastic for everyone listening, The Earned Life. Please go out, pick a copy, recommend it to your friends. You know, any chance you get an opportunity um, to follow or, or listen to uh, Marshall's work, please do. He is just, uh, you know, a wonderful human who has uh, made it his mission, in my opinion, to share what he knows and, and leave the world a better place for him being in it. So I appreciate you, Marshall. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I, I'm honored to call you a friend. Um, and a mentor. So anything that you would like to leave for our listeners before we, we call it it quits. Final advice, take a deep breath. Imagine you're 95 years old, you're just getting ready to die. But before you die, you're given a great gift, the ability to go back in time and talk to the person who's listening to me right now. What advice would that old person have for you? That old person knew what mattered in life and what didn't. Well, whatever you're thinking now, do that. In terms of performance appraisals, that's the only one that's going to matter. And some friends of mine interviewed old folks who are dying and said, what advice would you have? Three themes. Theme number one is basically life is short, have fun. Just enjoy the process of life. Don't get so busy looking at what you don't have. You can't appreciate what you do have. Number two is do whatever you can do to help friends, family, people. The main reason to do that has nothing to do with money or status or getting ahead. It's just the old person will be proud of you because you did. And Final one is just go for it. World's changing, industry's changing, do what you think is right. May not win. Hey, at least you tried. At least you tried. As I've grown older, my level of aspiration has actually gone down and down and down. You know what it is? Help you have just a little better life. <laughs> That's it. Help you have just a little better life. That's good enough. If I achieve that, I'm declaring victory here. Well, on that note, there's nothing else I can say, but thank you again, Marshall, for joining me on the What's Next podcast. Thank you for your latest book, The Earned Life. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. What an amazing conversation. I actually thought about not doing this closing because Marshall closed it so well. But I will offer you the opportunity to ask yourself, did you do your best today? And I think you did by listening to this podcast. Thank you for joining me on the What's Next podcast with Marshall Goldsmith. Go pick up a copy of his book, The Earned Life. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe, leave some feedback. I look forward to you joining me again next time. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.